Amen. Thank you, Drake. Appreciate that. Sharing what's in your heart through music. Brings joy to my heart this morning to see Miss Pat can join us. She's back in the among the saints. Appreciate that blessing. And uh, we, I, I love that song, this is our daily bread, your word, your very word spoken. Because whenever we look at God's word, that's, that's what we see and that's what we, uh, we indulge in is God's gift of his word. And he's so wise and beautiful and holy that it's always a treat. So I'm excited to share God's word with you this morning. And we are in the book of Revelation where Jesus addresses seven churches in Asia Minor directly. He speaks specifically into their situation and into their hearts, really, because he walks among his churches and he knows the hearts, not just of individuals, but the the persona that each church takes on. And so though he speaks to each church directly in their situation, his message is for all those who would have ears to hear. And so there's a, a real sense in which these churches represent all churches, Because all churches have strengths and weaknesses. And so, um, you know, there's a sense in which we are represented in these churches as well. We want to examine our hearts individually and corporately to see what God would have to sanctify in us. But one of the things I'm sure that you have noticed that he speaks about often is persecution. He talks about persecution. Some of the churches in that day and age were experiencing persecution and one of the reasons that this is one of the main themes of revelation is because our good and kind God wants to prepare his people for perhaps present or future persecution to come and much of the book of revelation has to do with our mindset what will we do in the end times or in our times of trial and persecution how will we respond? What will happen in our hearts? Are our hearts strong enough? Will they hold fast? And so Jesus talks about persecution. And often the way that he addresses it, we have seen, is by teaching us and reminding us who he is. And that's one of the reasons that the addresses to the churches begin with a reminder of the attributes of Christ. Who he is and what he is capable of. We're going to look at the six of seven churches this morning. The church of Philadelphia. And we will once again be reminded that they are suffering um, some kind of persecution. Experiencing some kind of hard times. But before we dive into that. A good question to ask is, well, if one of the purposes of this book was to prepare God's children, his very own children, for present or future hard times, did it work? Because we believe this book was written before the end of the first, uh, in the, towards the end of the first century. So did, did it sink in as these letters circulated around the churches? Did the message sink in? And we have evidence that it did indeed Sink in. Not a lot of evidence. And so I kind of want to um, introduce my sermon with at least one piece of evidence that the Christians were getting the message that Jesus, what, uh, how, what Jesus revealed in this book of Revelation. 
Well, it starts like this, as you know, uh, posthumously, Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, was uh, awarded or um, senate ascribed to him deity, which means what do you do with deity? You pay it homage. You, you worship it in some way. And so he was such a great leader. He was a god. They, they made him a god or ascribed him deity. And so within the Roman Empire, one of the things that you did was pay homage to the Roman emperors as some form of deity. And it didn't, it didn't, they didn't keep with the practice of the posthumous deity. Some of the emperors said, well, why should I wait till I die? Worship me now. And that became a practice. It wasn't just a practice. It started out as a practice, but it eventually became a law. And the, your obedience or willingness to pay homage to this emperor as a god was your kind of your final test of loyalty and fidelity to the Roman Empire. It was the litmus test. The persecution in the church was first localized, a little bit over here, a little bit in this area, this geographical area. But as time went on, it became um, more, more universal or throughout the empire, and it grew worse. By the time of Emperor Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117 AD, it was illegal to be a Christian. And so uh, you, could be, you could be captured and dragged before the proconsul, if you were found to be a Christian, because Christian culture was beginning to clash with the ways of the Romans. Now, there are historical documents that record a dialogue between Christians that had been brought before the proconsul and the proconsul leader. And this was in the city of Carthage in North Africa. So it's, these are preserved courtroom documents. It's not necessarily a Christian document, but these are documents that were found, historical documents that were found as courtroom documents. So written in AD 180, it's actually the first evidence that we found that there were even Christians in North Africa at that time. So according to Faith and Culture magazine, Saturninus, Saturninus, that's a, that's a mouthful, says to this group of Christians that were brought before him, swear now by the Lord our emperor. In other words, pay homage to him as your Lord, our Lord, everyone's Lord. And the spokesman for the group says this, we have committed no wrong, we have committed no theft, when we buy something, we pay tax on it. We do all this because we know our Lord, who no one sees with these eyes, who is the king of kings and the emperor of all nations. And you might recognize those words. So they were being asked to, in some form, pay homage, to worship the emperor as a divine lord. And they refused. And you will remember that the Romans kind of, in order to make peace and keep insurrections down in their empire, the communities and the peoples that they conquered, they would kind of swap gods with them. And, you know, here, let's just put them all together and worship them all. And that way we worship the same gods. We're not enemies 
and so forth. And that's how it went down. But the Christians couldn't do that. They, they couldn't swap God's, they, uh, the Jews either, by the way. Uh, but the Christians couldn't swap gods, and they were not going to pay homage to any other god but Jesus. So if this Roman emperor claimed to be divine, that was a deal breaker. Because the commandment is you may not worship a false god and there is only one true god. And they wanted to be true. They wanted to obey the Lord and worship him alone. And so when it came to being good citizens, as scripture teaches, we are to be good citizens. And the Romans often didn't quite understand where Christians were coming from. Because, you know, okay, you pay your taxes. And you even say you wish the emperor well. And that you even pray for the emperor. And you do everything the emperor asks you to do within reason. You're peacemakers. You're good citizens. And all we're asking you to do is just a little worship here. So why don't you just take the extra step and hail him as a lord, as a god, one of many. So they didn't understand this stance often because Christians were so well behaved and so respectful and honorable. But as you know, they could not do that and they would not. So Saturninus, this was something that he really didn't want, even want to be bothered with, this little group of Christians. There are a lot of other important things for him to intend to. So he says, look, why don't you just take 30 days? You can go. Take 30 days to think about this. And then you can present yourself to me after that. In which they responded, no, we are Christians. And Saturninus says, well, since you have obstinately persisted, it is determined that you will be put to the sword. And they all answered, we give thanks to God. Today we are martyrs in heaven. Thanks be to God. That was their response. And with that response, they were put to the sword. They were martyred. Now, the man who responded uh, for the other believers there, his name was Sporadus. And Sporadus protested this, and this is recorded. I do not acknowledge the empire of this world. I acknowledge my Lord, the emperor of kings and all nations. That's right out of Revelation 1.5. It says, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So the message sunk through. They began to worship their Lord as not just the, the king of Israel, but the king of all nations, the ruler over all the world. And so in essence, in this court record, they quoted Revelation 1.5. So the Alpha, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning to end, was being grasped and understood. And Christians were indeed holding fast and some were giving their lives. They were giving their lives to stay true to the truth that there really is only one God. And he alone deserves any kind of worship. And we know that because he tells us that. And though our nature may be prone to compromise and we might think it's okay and justify these kind of things in our mind due to our brokenness, God speaks clearly on these issues and allows us to rightly worship him, to worship the right God in the right way. 
So with that in mind, let's look at our text this morning in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of, synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So I'm not going to take my usual route and do the, the commendation and the rebuke and the promise, uh, but we do want to note some of these things as we move along. And notice what he is commending them for, what has impressed him as he searches the hearts and minds of his people in, in this gathered location, the local church. You have kept my word and have not denied my name. It's important. We're learning what's, what's endearing, what's valuable to God. They kept his word, they obeyed his word, and then in verse 10, that was 8, 10, you have kept my word about patient endurance. Patience is important to God. Uh, not demanding things immediately, being able to endure the, the good times and also the hard times. So that's their commendation. And this powerless church, as it is said, at least has the power to endure, at least has the strength and the power to hold fast and to be patient. And this is not just hearing the word of God, but they are obeying it. And not just growing in, in knowledge without wisdom, as we learned this morning in Sunday school. Wisdom is the, often the application of what you're learning. It's, it's working it into your, the moral fabric of your life. So they're, they're growing to be durable. They know how to hold. And perhaps this message will help us understand how. So rather than do the, the commendation and the rebuke and the promise, I'm going to do uh, highlight the key the door, and the pillar, because those are the symbols that the Lord brings uh, to note in this passage. So first, let's look at the key, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David. Well, he's holy, he's true, he, he reveals himself in that way, but he also assumes God's title, because this is how God addresses himself or reveals himself in the Old Testament, and so Christ assumes that title because he, of course, is God. And he possesses the key of David. What's the significance of this? What is this 
key. Well, he's using symbolic language, and it's symbolic language that we see in the Old Testament in 2 Kings, I believe chapter 18, but also in Isaiah chapter 22. And I won't bother to read uh, the passage in 2 Kings, but I will tell you um, the story. And that is that the tribes, the nation of Israel at this time, unfortunately, has been divided. So you have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom, now Judah, is surrounded by a very powerful foe, the army of Assyria. So the Assyrians are camped around there, and the southern tribe has refused to to pay tribute. And that's how it worked in that day. You know, you used your power, you you overcame your enemies, and you kind of plundered them. You took their riches, or you kind of had that you would ask them to pay you rent. We want our rent to keep us from attacking you and annihilating you. You have to pay us rent in that sense. Well, they had refused to do that, and they found themselves surrounded by the greatest army known in that, in that day and age to those people. At this point in time, this army had never been defeated. So they are in a precarious situation to be surrounded by them on their doorstep. Well, something that was also common that day is rather than king to king speaking, you would sometimes you would send an emissary, you would send a representative for yourself to do the negotiation. So King Hezekiah sends out a man by the name of Eliakim, and he was a high official, highly trusted, kind of a right-hand man person. You only entrust these important issues to somebody who's not going to mess it up, because these are life and death situations. Eliakim was made steward over the the entire uh, household of the king. So he he was basically second only to the king. And in that day you had keys for important things. Now it wasn't just keys for doors like we would have because in that day they didn't always use doors. Sometimes they had them and sometimes they didn't in their dwellings. But primarily what keys were used for because places weren't as protected as we would see them today. People might just come right on into your house. You would hide your most valuable, most your uh, valuables, like in, in hidden places in chests or treasure chests or under the ground or things like that. But for kings, you had quite a bit, so you would hide them in rooms or in chests, and you would need a key that you could put under lock and key. So to have a key to a household is to have access to the things of the of the greatest importance, to have access and control of the things. Um, that have the most value. So in here, Jesus isn't making reference so much to the battle scenario. He's making reference to the, the symbolism of being a person that has the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, the keys to the household. He's been entrusted with all things. He's been given that authority by his heavenly Father. So in the passage in Isaiah 22, I will read this because you see how this was bestowed upon him. 
It was bestowed upon him because it actually was taken away from another steward who was not doing a good job as a head of a household, and it was given to Eliakim. And we find this in Isaiah 22, beginning in verse 20. I'll read it for you. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. Now, that must be a pretty big key if you've got to carry it over your shoulder. And he shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. And I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. So this is a prototype of Christ, is of, of how Christ is operating and the authority and the power that Christ has been given by his father. He's completely trustworthy, completely faithful, and therefore he has access to absolutely everything that the father has access to because he has been granted this. So it's, it's clear how he is using this symbolism. And actually, uh, there's a sense in which, in my opinion, verse 23 kind of speaks to not just the key, but the door and the pillar symbolism, because he talks about the door here, but also the tent peg. I'm, I'm going to fasten you, I'm going to place you like a, a tent peg, drive him in the ground so that nobody can move him. And as you will see, that's the whole concept behind the pillar idea. So we are seeing Christ reveal himself in this way as the house, the the head of the household, which is the church of God. He's he's not a steward or a prototype. He is the real thing, faithful over God's house, has absolute authority. He has the keys to every sphere of, of every circle of life and existence that there is. He has the keys to things that we might not have ever even imagined. He has power and authority that we may not understand on this kind of scale. But he has permission to go absolutely everywhere. Hidden things, secret things, he's been given it all. Valuable things. God has given this to Christ. So he has the keys, of course, to heaven. And he has the keys to hell. Who has the keys to hell? Does Satan have the keys to hell? Is Satan the one that has the authority as far as who gets to come in to his realm? Even Christ has the authority to have the keys to Hades, Revelation 1.18. Uh, he is the one who was, he describes himself as the one who was dead and is now alive. Well, how do you do that? How do you escape death? How do you get out of the grave? Or in his case, how do you come out of the tomb? Well, I got the key. I I just opened the door, so to speak. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. I have authority over all of these realms. I can open them and I can close them. I'm not bound by any of these kind of things. So we see the kind of God that we're serving, the, the kind of God that we worship here this morning, that we sing to, that we avail ourselves to. He's a God that is not bound by anything, but is sovereign over all things. And not just heaven, but he also has the keys 
to hell. He can open and close any kingdom treasure. All the bounty, all the good things that God has in store for his people, for his churches. Christ has the keys to all those rooms, to all those treasure chests, to all those things. Now that's a lot of power. That's a lot of power. And yet he is perfectly faithful and capable to wield this kind of power. He's not going to abuse it in any kind of way. He is that good. And he is worthy to decide for all mankind and for every creature what opens and what closes. That's his position. It's not our position. It's the position of Christ. Well, to finish the story, just because it would only be right, in Hezekiah's day, he's surrounded by an enemy that obviously he cannot defeat. What does he do? He does what we should always do as true believers of God, as people who believe in the power of God, just pray. I am overwhelmed. I'm overtaken. My muscles aren't big enough to beat my foe, my enemy. And they are certainly poised to be conquered. And so Hezekiah prays and God acts. How does God act? There was not even the wielding of a sword in the way God acts. He spread a rumor. He spread a rumor in the community, in the empire, in such a way that the Assyrian army felt threatened by another foe and removed themselves to face that. And so when Israel wakes up, people wake up the next day, the encampment is gone because they prayed to God and God acted. It's only fair that I tell you the rest of that story. So here we have Philadelphia, and they're described as being uh, weak. They're described as being powerless. We don't know exactly what that means. Why, Why were they defined in that way? Uh, Perhaps they're just people of lowly means. I I guess they don't have a very big church. Maybe they're few in numbers. Uh, Maybe they're just impoverished. Uh, Maybe there's no one in their congregation that uh, has any kind of political clout. Maybe no big speakers. There's there's just no, no oomph behind them to make this impact and to say, we're the kind of church that can get things done and we're going to take over this territory for the kingdom of God. That's not the position that they were in. And they were facing some kind of uh, form of persecution. And by the looks of it, if you think about it, if they're, if they're so powerless, perhaps they were in a position where it would look like they would be pretty easy just to be overtaken. And if they had an enemy, they would be an easy prey. Now this, of course, is all by God's authority, right? Because he has the keys. And he opens and shuts doors. By his authority, this little church that by his own admission looked powerless, yet they had this underlying power to hold the fort. They had this this grit to keep their confession of faith in Christ. Of course, these are the things that are the most valuable. This is what's the most important. 
Because if you remember in Sardis, riches are measured in different ways. We can lose everything on a physical plane, and yet from, from Christ's perspective, we're still filthy rich. How? Because of the inheritance that he has for us. Now, these are the kind of things that are important for us to remember as time gets difficult and as we may lose things that we clung to so closely and valued so much. And we need to realize that they, the things of this earth and material things do have a place and they are important. There's such a thing as stewardship and ownership. And God uses all of this in his kingdom. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story depends on our professional faith in the one and only true God and how we keep that, how we hold fast. Is it a true confession that has worked its way so deep into our hearts and minds that no matter what happens out here, you're not changing this relationship that I have because this will never end and this comes and goes. This is fleeting. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my life to and my energy and my thoughts to the things that matter most in the end, not spend all my time with things that are just going to rot anyway. And that's that, this is the mindset, I think, that Revelation would have us think. So they're focused on the largeness of God instead of the smallness of themselves or their own congregation. A very important biblical principle. How do we get through hard times like this? Not by focusing on what we don't have or what we're not. We focus on the authority that Christ has as a king. And we we wonder at this kind of power and how he yields it. So Christ holds the key to the household. So if you think about, well, how is it possible that, that the first Jews were converted to be Christians? Because Christ holds the key and and he lets them in. He unlocked the door for them to believe in the triune God. Well, who opened the door for the first Samaritans? You know, those unspeakables in the Jewish community. Who opened the door for them to believe? That would be Christ because he has the power to open the door. Well, who opened the door for the Gentiles for you and I to come into the kingdom? That would be Christ because he has the key to unlock it. And things that used to be locked now are open. How did I get into the kingdom of God? Because by Christ's power and authority, he unlocked that little teeny door and let me scoop in through the bottom the best I could. How do you get into the kingdom? It is through the power of Christ. He holds the keys to these kind of things because his father has entrusted him and he's that good and he's that faithful and he's that wise and he knows. He doesn't just have the keys and he knows these things. So we, we, we praise him in our hearts and we thank him that he can open doors and that he opened the door for us for our salvation so that we can live eternally with the Lord. The door of salvation is open for all to enter. I've said before that when you look at redemptive history, well, what age are we in now? We could be described in the age of the gospel. This is the age, the time, the period of redemptive history where by God's plan, he has shared the gospel with us. He sent Christ with the message. The Holy Spirit is still here, though. Christ is at the right hand of the Father. And we have the message, the good news of the gospel. And this is the age where the door is open to spread it. The door is open to spread it. We can share the gospel with whoever we so please, 
for the most part in our culture. Now, there will be a time where Christ, who wields the keys, will put the key in the door, so to speak, and turn it and lock that latch. And when that happens, that door is no longer open. It is temporary only. It is seasonal. It's by God's timing. And when that door latches, there is no getting through that door. Plain and simple. Because he holds the power to it. There's no getting through that door. So this is the age of salvation. We want to take advantage of it because we don't know when the wielder wielder of the keys will close that door. And we want to tell as many people about Christ as we can. Because time is of the essence and this is good news. A lot of people don't like the idea of the locked door. A lot of people don't like the idea that Christ has the keys to heaven and hell. They prefer to fashion a God in their own image who is just permissive like we are. Who just loves us and accepts us for anything and, and, and evil doesn't really matter. And we see that in, even in our churches today where we fashion God after our own image. God's only a God of love. He's not a God of holiness. He doesn't hate evil and he's not going to separate it. And he's not going to bring justice and judgment down on it in the end. And yet... Just like in the days of Noah when the door was shut, the door was shut. It was closed. It was sealed. Leak-proof, I guess, because of the ark stayed afloat. And the time had come. There were hundreds of years where people could have repented as the message went out and the warning went out. And the door shut. I think scripture says God shut the door. That means on the other side of that door were people who did not repent, and therefore they received God's judgment. The time was up. So like it or not, that is the way God operates, and, and he speaks to this. He warns us in the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, the same kind of scenario. Lord, will those who are saved be few? The question was asked. And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. And then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you came from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And that's why. Because they're evil. They're workers of evil. They're not true believers. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God. But you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Luke 13. So Christ has spoken on this. When we think about Jesus yielding the keys, we want to understand that he has authority over all things, and that includes judgment. And there is a limited time. He is addressing, in this passage in Luke, really believers, people who at least identify as believers, because they say, well, we commune with you, we fellowship with your people. Maybe the Lord's table is what he's referring to. And we certainly 
availed ourselves and we sat under your teaching. We are one of you, one of your people. Well, those are things that should happen. We should, say, take communion. We should fellowship with one another and we should, we should put ourselves under the teaching of Christ as a result of salvation. But those things don't mean for sure that we are actually saved. That's the fruit of salvation. And in this case, these were still workers of iniquity. They had not been transformed. They had not repented in their hearts. They wanted to take a shortcut, perhaps, into the kingdom, and it does not work. There needs to be an authentic time where we get straight with God, acknowledge our sins, acknowledge His holiness, and acknowledge the sacrifice of Christ as atonement for our sins, because that is the only way that we get into the kingdom of God. And how gracious is it of God to give us this whole season of centuries where the gospel can go out to the world. Even in closed places, God finds a way eventually in his timing, in his way, to bring the gospel to people who seek it. The keys of the kingdom is a symbol But not only does he have the keys, he has the door. Who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. And then he says in verse 8, and this is kind of a, a promise here. I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name, even with your little means and your little Whenever scripture talks about an open door, it usually is talking about some kind of kingdom progress where the kingdom makes gains ground, some kind of ministry event. Something is happening here. God opens a door for him to be glorified in this area or that area. John Stott calls it a door of opportunity. So an open door is a door of ministry opportunity. It was closed at one point and now it's Open, Perhaps the door is open so for Christ to do his work to reconcile the world to God through himself. It's always ministry oriented. Paul was able to preach and teach in the city of Ephesus, the church of Ephesus. For three years, he says, day and night I labored among you. I, I spoke in public and I spoke in homes. I spoke one-on-one for three years. I was teaching and proclaiming Christ because there was an open door Jesus opened that door for me to do this. You can't do that in all places. Some places are not available at this time. But for Paul, it was available. He says, I hope to spend, in in Corinthians, I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. So there's still... Hardship, there are still people he has to watch out for that he can't trust. And yet in the midst of it, one eye on the enemies and the other eye on preaching the gospel, he is able to make a lot of headway. Perhaps you'll recall when we studied the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 2. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother uh, Titus there. Now, here you have an opportunity where there's an open door. Paul didn't take it because his spirit was restless in that. So there are times where you can have uh, 
different directions and different open doors. You can have the problem of, man, these people are open to the gospel. Ministry can be happening over here. These people want to grow. There's only one of me. Which direction do I, do I go in the kingdom? So it's not always so simple that you just have the option of one door. And sometimes God opens the door so wide, just so wide, that now it's not an issue of God opening a door. It's an issue of who's going to go through it. What, what children, what believers are going to enter through the door that God has opened so wide? And of course we find this, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors to his harvest in, harvest in Matthew chapter 9. So we have all these different dynamics going on in our lives in, in understanding God's will and seeking uh, progress in the kingdom, making headway. Sometimes we might pray, the Apostle Paul said in Colossians, pray for me. Pray for an open door of ministry and also that I may speak clearly. Now this is, Paul's like the, the prince of preachers. If anybody can speak clearly, he is very, very educated man. And yet he's still asking for open doors and to speak the gospel clearly and effectively. Pray for him, he says, in that way. So the believers in Philadelphia, in some way, they're struggling, they're weak, they're facing opposition. And in this case, the Jews, like they did in the uh, former church of Smyrna, are claiming you Gentiles can't be children of God because you don't have the sign of circumcision. And it was all about the outward sign. And Jesus calls that not a synagogue or a house of God, but he calls the place where they gather a place of Satan because they are keeping people out of the kingdom of God because the outward look of, of worship does not mean your heart has been changed. Your, your heart is far from me, though your lips say one thing, your heart does another. And Jesus calls for truth and authenticity in this case. And that's the same thing that's happening here in Philadelphia. So they got hardship in that sense. Uh, by the way, Jesus doesn't um, just pick on the Jews. Sometimes you get a, the idea that he's always picking on the Jews. And the Jews, of course, uh, were prominent in the New Testament because that was God's people. But we learned with the church of Sardis, he'll pick on Christians too. When he said, like, you have a reputation of being all alive and this, this up and happening church, and you're dead. You're dead. So he's not partial in that sense. So notice that the, the door, that, notice what the door is that God will open to this church. I'll make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now that is incredible. Because if that's a source of persecution and hardship, that means that the door is shut right now. That these Jews are not touchable, they're not reachable, they're not listening to any truth, argument, witness, testimony. They just, their minds are absolutely made up. Completely shut door. And God's going to work His power in this situation. The time will come 
when their hearts will be so changed, the door will be so wide open by the power of God that their hearts will be completely changed and now they will come to you in that, in that posture of weakness and bow down to you because they will see the light and they will see the truth and I will open the door for them. And so people in your life that you think that they have slammed the door on your testimony countless times, they are reachable, there's no way they will ever enter into the kingdom of God. Even that door can be open. And sometimes it's how we present ourselves to God in the times of closed doors. It's how faithful we are when all the doors are closed and we feel like we can't go anywhere or do anything, but we hold fast our confession and we, we're just faithful to God. It's those times that may be preparing us because God has something in mind that we don't know about and that he's going to open a door that even in our own minds thought, man, talk about shut. And we write, we write these people off. We write their hard hearts off. There's no hard heart that God can't penetrate. So he opens this door. A people that were once maybe our worst foes and enemies, the biggest pains, the thorns in our flesh, they may become our greatest allies in the faith. Now think about that, especially in America with all the divisiveness between politics where we think, well, those people will never see the light. They'll never walk in truth. They're so evil and wicked. Don't forget about the power of God and how he can open doors that were once shut. And then lastly, we have the pillar. You know there's always a promise. Hold fast so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own name, my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So again, you're doing great at holding fast. Continue to do that, he says. Hold fast. That's how you conquer. You do not give up ground. I am at work here. Don't let your guard down. Don't let anybody come and steal what you have. So the promise here, we have these three names. You have God and then you have the New Jerusalem or the church and you have Christ. When someone puts their name upon you, it's the idea of ownership. You are mine. When he says, I write my name on you, it's I've labeled you as mine. You're my people. And once you're mine, once I have put my name upon you and ascribed that upon you, you will always be my people. And so when we feel weak, when we feel lonely, we remember whose we are as children of God, that he has placed his name upon us. Not only is our name written in the book of life, but we have his name inscribed upon us that he knows, that he recognizes. And perhaps even when we lose sight of him, he doesn't lose sight of us. And we also have the idea of the pillar it's that strength. We need a pillar. If you don't want the building to collapse, you want a strong one, right? Engineers out there, we got a few engineers here. Don't be putting weak pillars. A two by four will not hold this church up. You need more than that. So he says, I will make you a pillar. It's the idea of strength, uh, stability. 
It's the idea of being immovable. So here's how we close this. This particular area, or when I, I prepared this particular sermon in advance, when I was preparing this sermon, that were literally the days of the earthquakes in the Turkey and Syria border. So I'm preparing this sermon. This is the, uh, so they're digging out people, they're trying to find bodies. And recently Mark brought to us a video of how the churches in that area have, have come together and they are um, offering very needed provisions to the people who have, they've been wiped out. The earthquake was devastating. It's the same area that Philadelphia is located. And in 17 AD, they experienced a devastating earthquake. The things about earthquakes, if you're on that, because it's, it's the fault line, you're on that fault line, you don't feel very stable. You know, when, when things go bad and there are catastrophes, often you, you think, well, at least I can run. I got solid ground, and there's just something so reassuring about solid ground. But what do you do when that solid ground isn't solid? What do you do when that crumbles? And it creates a tremendous insecurity. I remember um, very faintly when I went to Japan uh, to visit Bobby and Shoko, not, I think just previous to that, maybe a couple years, there was a big earthquake in Kobe. Was it Kobe? And uh, that's, am I pronouncing that right? Well, now, what's the real ones? Because I don't want to keep saying Kobe. Not Kobe, but Kobe, so now you know. <laughs> there was an earthquake there, but uh, it, they also had big um, buildings, and buildings that are larger, they have to be engineered to be able to move. Uh, so they have movement in it, but there would be, if I noticed that whenever, I could feel the kind of the building move. You may have been in a, a building that can move sometimes. But anyway, whenever I felt it, I'd look around, and on some of their faces were looks of terror. Because if you've experienced an earthquake before and you start getting that funny feeling under your feet, you don't know what's going to happen. So he brings to this church who may be weak, feeling vulnerable, not feeling like like a tent peg shoved into the ground. And he says, you're going to be a pillar in the temple. Stable, immovable, and you will never be pushed out. You'll never be shaken out. You will be with me. My name is on you. You will be with me forever and ever. Strong, powerful, durable. So we want to close with that in mind of the kind of God that we're here to worship. And no matter what's going on in our lives, we're feeling weak, we're feeling lonely. This is who God reveals himself and this is how God promises to be in our life and to manifest himself in our lives. He's a worthy God that wields a lot of power and he alone is worthy of our worship. What a privilege it is to give it to him. May God bless the preaching of his word.